process of fixing it, you ended up with a bigger mess? Like, you, you ever have that, you're eating your food, like you're eating some spaghetti or something like that, you know, and you get a little drop of meat sauce on your shirt, and there's just like that little piece of meat there, and then you're like, well, I could leave it, and nobody, it's, it's small, it's okay, but then you just can't resist wiping it to try and to get it to go away. And as you wipe it, you realize, oh, I'm just spreading the sauce all over my shirt. And what was a little spot is now like a big spot. And it's just going to keep growing. And now everybody can see that I am a sloppy, sloppy spaghetti eater. This is a problem. I guess that's just me. Okay. All right. Uh, You know, you go make a mess messier. It happens. You know, you try and clean it up. You know, you spill some paint and you start wiping it up and all of a sudden, like, the paint just keeps moving and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, what's happening there? And so what we're talking about this morning is how we can, in our lives, how we can keep the messes in our lives, because we all have messes. We all have things that we are dealing with that are just sort of unmanageable. You know, and maybe they're messes that we got ourselves into, or maybe they're messes that we've sort of stumbled into. We married into them, we, 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 they're part of a, you know, a friend of ours is dealing with them, whatever. Our kids created a mess. You know, you had kids and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm in a real mess now. Um, you know, whatever it is, we all have messes in our lives. And the question is, is now that we have a mess, what are we going to do about it? And how do we keep the messes in our lives from getting messier? Now, before I get to that, I want to show, I want to update you on a couple things. One is, so at the beginning of the series, Pastor Michael started talking about how his backyard was a mess. Now, he and I share a backyard because we actually live in the same house, and that's a long story that I'm not going to share with you right now. Um, it also comes with its own completely different set of messes, but that's another story for another time. Well, this is the backyard. This was the backyard a few weeks ago. Now, as a family, we've been working on turning that backyard, addressing the mess of our backyard and turning it into something better. I think Michael gave an update last week, but this is what it looked like this morning with the sun shining. We've got nice laid sod. The trampoline is up. Everything's done, and it looks a lot better than it did. We've addressed the mess, and now all we have to do is just keep watering the grass. Otherwise, we'll probably have a bigger mess. All right, so that's, that's an update on that. The second thing I wanted to just do is I wanted to say thank you to everybody. Um, I graduated, I finished my master's degree a couple weeks ago and graduated, and then last week um, you guys did a big thank you for me, and some people threw a surprise party for me, and that was really sweet. And I just want to say thank you um, from my heart that, it, you know, three years of schooling on top of a job and a family is a lot, and it's just been really great that I've felt so supported by the staff here at Parkway, the leadership of Parkway Church, and you guys. And um, so it's just been so great to have that sort of family um, encouragement and support. And so I just wanted to say thank you um, for supporting me as I've been doing that. Um, and so I'm done now, and I'm figuring out what to do with the extra 15 hours I have in a week. So we'll, 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 we'll see about that. All right, so how to keep our mess from getting messier. You know, I mean, our messes could be anything. It could be a financial mess. It could be a relational mess. It could be a, a mess that we've made at school or at work. Whatever are your mess is, if you make a mess messier, it just gets messier. Like, I mean, that, you know, you, if you make it messier, it just gets messier. And every mess that you or I are involved in, to, 
when we go to deal with the mess, there's a whole set of options. And usually the first options to dealing with our mess are bad options. A whole bunch of bad options. You know, we could, we could lie about our mess. We could say it's not as bad as it is. We could try and cover it up. We could borrow more money. We could get other people to cover for us. We could just deny that it's actually a problem. There's all sorts of bad options of ways that we can deal with our mess. But in the end, those quick fixes, those quick options, make things worse. So what I want us to think about today is how can we deal with our mess without making it messier? How can we avoid those bad options that seem like quick fixes, that seem like the solution, but in the end only make things worse? Like the little, you know, like wiping the spaghetti stain on your shirt that just makes it worse and worse. It's a quick fix, and then you realize, oh, that was not the solution at all. It's just made the mess messier. Because we all end up in a mess at one point or another, and so the question is, now that we're in a mess, what are we going to do about it? So what I want us to do today is I want us to look at the story of one person in the Bible who found himself in a mess, and who gives us an example of how not to make our mess messier. Now, he was involved in a lot of messes in his life, and some of the messes in his life he did make a, big, a bigger mess of. But in this particular situation, he gives us an example of how we can not make our mess messier. How we can avoid the er in messy. Er. All right, so we're going we're gonna to do some er avoidance today. You good with that? All right. Two people are good. Excellent. All right. I'll do some more juggling in between if it gets... All right. All right, so our story today is from the book of um, 1 Samuel chapter 24. It takes place in about the year 1000 BC, so a long, long time ago, in a galaxy very, very close to here. And, uh, and the story is about a man named David. Now, before we get to the story that happens in 1 Samuel 24, we need some context for the story. We need to understand what's going on before we understand— we need to understand how the mess got started before we figure out how D David deals with this mess. So— if you don't know the story of David at all, this will be new to you. If you know the story of David, this will be kind of like recap. So I'm going to try and split the difference, give as much info as I need, and then just, you know, and you can fill in the blanks if you know the story. David was a young shepherd boy who lived with his father, Jesse, in the town of Bethlehem. One day, the prophet Samuel in the land of Israel came and said to Jesse, David's dad, said, hey, one of your sons is going to be king one day. I'm going to anoint him king right now. Jesse says, okay, that's cool, and eventually they figure out it's David. David is the son that's going to become king. Samuel anoints him and says, David, you are going to be the king. This is good news, except there's a problem. Israel already has a king. His name is Saul. So Israel has this older, wise, this older king, Saul, and then they have this little kid king, future king, David. Do you see where the tension can be here? Saul, as you imagine, is none too pleased to hear that Samuel's went ahead and already appointed his successor. Saul's plan was that his kids would become king, but Samuel said, no, David's going to become king instead. Saul is not terribly thrilled about this situation whatsoever, but David's just a young little shepherd in a tiny little village of Bethlehem, so you kind of live with it for a little bit. The mess isn't too bad. But then the whole David and Goliath thing happens. So there's 
Goliath is this giant warrior who fights for the Philistine army, which is the enemy of Israel. Goliath comes, and he says, basically threatens the whole nation of Israel. Everybody's afraid of him. They don't think he, that he can be defeated, so nobody wants to fight him. Because the challenge is, is you, you fight Goliath. If you kill Goliath, the Israelites win. If Goliath kills the person who fights him, the Philistines win. It's not a good scene. Everybody says he can't be beaten. So nobody fights him, and they just kind of have a stalemate there for a little bit. David shows up and says, hey, I'm not too scared of this guy. I've actually, as a shepherd, I've killed um, you know, bears and lions protecting my sheep. This guy doesn't seem any scarier than a bear. I'm going to give it a shot. He, if you know the story, he kills Goliath. And there's a great victory for the nation of Israel, and he becomes an overnight celebrity. He becomes like one of the most famous person in Israel overnight. Did you hear about the shepherd kid who killed Goliath? It's amazing. He is so awesome. It's great. Everywhere David goes from then on, people are celebrating him. They come out in the streets, and they start chanting. They say things like, Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. Saul's like, hey, wait a second. First of all, he killed one dude. Second of all, like, I'm the king. This isn't very fair. They like him better than me. So Saul was feeling insecure that David was going to be the future king, but now Saul is not only feeling insecure, he's feeling jealous of David's success. And so Saul says, he says, what's this? They credit David with tens of thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. Saul's hope was, was that David would be anointed king and that eventually when Saul got old and died, then David would become king. But now he sees that he's in a real problem. Here's this young guy who's going to be appointed, who's already been appointed the future king, and now he's the most popular person in the country. What is going to stop anyone, from, from the people, from just saying, hey, wait a second, David's going to be king anyways. Why do we, why do we need to wait? Let's just get rid of Saul, and David can become king. So this is what Saul is worried about. And he's trying to figure out how he's going to deal with it, but he can't do anything about it right now because David's too popular. All the people would, be, would just riot if he did anything at all to hurt David. So he's in a bit of a mess. So what he does is he puts David in charge of a portion of the army, gives him about 1,000 men, and just keeps sending him into battle over and over again. And deep down, he's kind of hoping that David's just you know, going to accidentally get killed. It doesn't happen. In fact, David just keeps winning victory after victory after victory, and it just keeps getting worse for Saul because now everybody's like, David's the greatest warrior in the history of war. He's the best. We love him. He's our favorite. Woo, woo, woo. Like, think like Raptors fans last night, but just like all the time with David. Like, you know, just like super excited. And then like, and so now Saul's like, okay, I don't, I don't know what to do. And eventually, Eventually, he hits on a solution because it says this. It says, In everything David had great success. When Saul saw, when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he led him in their campaigns. But Saul, an opportunity arises, and Saul sees a solution to cleaning up his mess. You see, David falls in love with one of Saul's daughters. And when David comes to ask Saul about the possibility of marrying his daughter, instead of saying, oh, well, you know, the dowry, the bride price is this much money or, you know, um, some land or some cattle, Saul says, oh, oh, David, so glad you came by to talk. 
I'm very excited about this, this marriage. I'm so excited, in fact, that I, I'm going I'm to offer you the deal of a lifetime. You don't have to offer me any money. You don't have to pay. You don't have to give me any cattle. You don't have to give me any land. You don't have to do anything in order to marry my daughter. There's just one thing you need to do. I need you to go kill 100 Philistines and bring back the evidence that you've done so. Again, Saul's thinking here is, I can't kill David myself, but if I can get the Philistines to do it, that'll solve all of my problems. Saul says, I won't raise a hand against them, but I'm going to let the Philistines do it. If I send David out and he's got to kill 100 Philistines, the odds are he's going to end up dead. So David gathers a few close friends. They go out and they kill not 100 Philistines, but 200 Philistines. And they come back and everybody's like, David's amazing. He was only supposed to kill 100. He killed 200. He's the greatest warrior. And Saul's like, oh my goodness, it just keeps getting worse. It just keeps getting worse. And this is the mess that David finds himself in. He is the enemy of the king, and the king can't stand him. But here's the thing is, is David didn't make this mess. And this is where David's maybe a little bit different than you and I. I think most of the messes you and I find ourselves in are usually ones that we create ourselves. But in this case, David didn't make the mess himself. In fact, he's the victim here. He didn't ask to be anointed king. He, just, he was the only person in Israel who had the courage to do the right thing and fight Goliath. He was just doing what he was asked to go into battle over and over again. And he kept succeeding. He just kept doing the right thing. And now he's in trouble for it. Now it just keeps making Saul angrier and angrier. And eventually things escalate to the point that Saul says, enough of like trying to get the angles on this. I'm just going to do this myself. And Saul goes ahead and he, one day, he and David are hanging out in the palace and Saul just starts chucking spears at David, trying to kill him. David like gets out of there as fast as he can and runs away. And then David goes and he gathers, he finds all the people in Israel, or a bunch of people in Israel, who are Saul's enemies. And he says, hey, Saul's out to kill me. He's out to kill you guys. It's probably better if we stick together. Let's make a run for it. We're going to go hide in the desert. We're going to go be outlaws for a bit. Are you with me? And they're like, what do we have to lose? So he gets a merry group of people, and they go out, and they run away. And they hide, and they live their life on the run away from Saul, because Saul does not relent in trying to kill David. Nothing is going to stop him. He is now, this is the solution to his mess, is to kill David. That's the only thing he can focus on. And so he makes it his life mission to get rid of David. But here's what's interesting. As crazy as all of that story is, that's just the setup for what we're actually talking about this morning. So we actually get to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And it says this. So, remember, David's out in the desert with his group of followers. They're running away from Saul. They're hiding. They're living the outlaw life. Saul is constantly sending soldiers out to search for them, to try and find them. You know, it's kind of like Star Wars, you know, and the Empire's always trying to find the Rebel Alliance. And, you know, they've actually, you know, and then they're like, oh, okay, we found the planet. We're going to blow it up. That's what Saul wants to do is, you know, he wants to find the Rebel Alliance. And so it says this. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, so he was out fighting a war, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. 
So one of Saul's spies comes back and says, hey, guess what, Saul? Good news. We found him. We know where he is. He's in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now, again, think Star Wars here. So like all these like imperial stormtroopers, like, like think like Saul is like Darth Vader and he gets like this huge, huge army. He gets 3,000 guys and David's probably got a group of under 100 people that are with him. And so Saul's like, you know what, we are going to squash this down. So he knows where David is. We're going to corner him. I'm going to bring this huge army in, and we're going to put an end to this right now. Saul sees a solution. So Saul and his men, this is probably my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Saul and his men came, maybe not my favorite verse, but it's a great one. Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. So he's out looking for David in the desert. A cave was there. And so what does Saul do? Saul goes to the cave to relieve himself. He goes to the bathroom. He's like, oh, I'm busy, busy looking for David. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just stop. Guys, hold up a second. Hold up. I just, just need to take a break. Need a little personal time. I'm, uh, I'm going up to the cave here. Nothing to see. Just, uh, just going up to the cave, taking care of things. So the whole army stops and waits. Saul goes up to the cave. He's hanging out there, checking his phone, doing his thing. And uh, this is where it gets super, super good. He goes into this cave, and there are, in this desert, there are caves all over the place in the rocks. But guess what? This happens to be the very cave where David and his friends are hiding. Saul walks into this cave to use the bathroom, and David and his men are at the far back of the cave. Saul doesn't know they're there. He's just minding his own business. And all of a sudden, everything changes. Because up to this point, Saul has been the one who has been pursuing David. He's wanted to kill him. This has been, the solu- this has been Saul's solution. But now David sees a solution to his mess. All of this time, Saul's been after him, but now David has an opportunity to clean up the mess. If Saul is the problem, all of a sudden, here's the solution. And everybody around David recognizes it. Here's what, here's what happens. The men say this. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. What are they talking about here? They're talking about how Basically, David and his men, as they were living the outlaw life, you know, you can imagine them sitting around campfires, and it's not an easy life. They're living in the desert. It's hot. They're staying in caves. They haven't been home in forever. Many of them probably haven't seen their families. It's not fun. They're, you know, eating snakes or whatever it is you eat for, you know, survive in the desert. And they're like, we're tired of this. And David's like, you know what, guys? I get it. I get it. This is a really hard life. It's a really, really difficult life. But guess what? God has promised that one day I'm going to be king. So if you guys stick it out with me, if you stick with me, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, God's going to fulfill his promise. I believe it. And then when I'm king, I'm going, to, I'm going to set you guys up. You guys are going to have jobs in my administration. Everything's going to be good. So just hang in there with me. The day is coming. I promise you that Saul is not going to be king forever. One day I'm going to be king, and it's going to work out. This is the moment that they have been dreaming about, the day that David will become king, and their mess will be cleaned up. And they see it. 
And everybody gets caught up in the emotion of the moment. And the obvious solution here is this. The way to clean up this mess is David just needs to kill Saul. That's what Saul wanted to do to David. So David just needs to do to Saul what Saul was going to do to David. That seems pretty, that seems pretty morally okay. That seems all right. And, and just think of how that moment would play. There's 3,000 soldiers sitting outside of the cave. And all they're waiting for is for Saul to come out. But what if instead of Saul coming out, David's the one who comes out of the cave? And what if, what if even better, like he's like holding like the severed head of Saul or something like that. Like everybody would be like, oh my goodness. He's the new king. And in that instant, the whole army would be like, well, he was going to be the king. He was appointed the king. Now he is the king. He's clearly the king. We're going to follow David. And everybody would be like, yeah, that works. This is, this is how this works in, this, in that day and age. You killed the king, you become the king. Works for us. We're with David now. It, the moment is right there. It would be... It would be There wouldn't have to be a war. There wouldn't have to be a battle. Just one quick movement, and the mess would be cleaned up. It's right there. If Saul is the cause of David's mess, it's like in this moment, somebody just handed David what seems to be a giant bottle of cleaning spray. He can get this whole thing cleaned up. The moment of truth has arrived for David. What's he going to do? So we're going to put this story on pause for a second. And I want to talk about virtue for a second, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to finish that story. But leave that tension hanging there of what is David going to do with Saul? Virtue. Every mess that you and I face is essentially created by a breakdown in virtue at some point, a failure of virtue. Now, what is virtue? Virtue is things like integrity, honesty, Self-control, self-sacrifice, goodness, putting others first. These are the things that make up virtue. And when we ignore virtue or when we fail to be virtuous, that's when we create a mess. When we do unvirtuous things, that's what creates the messes in our lives. And so David's mess was created because Saul, instead of being virtuous, chose to be jealous and chose to be insecure. If Saul was being virtuous, then in that moment, when he heard that David had been appointed king, or anointed future king, instead of being jealous, he could have said, you know what? Or insecure. He could have said, you know what? For the good of the country, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take David under my wing, and I'm going to mentor him. And I'm going to groom him and prepare him, just like he was my own son, so that when I die, he's ready to be the best king possible. And then the country's going to be in good hands. But Saul was too insecure for that. He tried, but he could never really do it. It wasn't what he wanted. He always saw David as a threat. And when people started celebrating David and said, you know, David's the greatest, instead of, instead of getting jealous, Saul could have celebrated too. He could have said, hey, this is good news. If David's going to be the future king, it's really great that the whole country loves him, that they respect him, 
It's going to be so good for the country in the future when the next king is somebody that everybody loves and thinks is a hero. That's going to be so good for morale. It's going to be so good for our country. I am so excited for the day when David can step into his destiny and the whole country can celebrate together. That would be hard, but it would be the virtuous thing. But that's not what Saul does. Saul gets jealous, and Saul gets insecure, and he acts out of his jealousy and his insecurity, and he creates a mess, a big mess, because he ignores virtue, and when you, and every mess is caused by a failure of virtue. But here's the other thing, too, is you can't clean up a mess that was created by a failure of virtue by another failure of virtue. Like, you can't get out a spaghetti stain by wiping more spaghetti on it. You can't, you know, I mean, two wrongs don't make a right. You know, a, a new mess doesn't make an unmess. You know, like, like, you don't, you can't fix a failure of virtue by deciding to be unvirtuous again. You know, if you ignore virtue, you're going to make a mess. If you compromise your integrity, you're going to make a mess. If you choose to be dishonest, you're going to make a mess. If you act selfishly, if you um, lose your cool, if you get impatient, eventually you're going to make a mess. But the solution to that mess is not to be like, oh, I, I was dishonest, and so the way I'm going to get out of this mess is I'm going to be more dishonest. You don't double down on the behavior that got you into the mess and then expect to, your, to get yourself out of the mess. It works that way when other, somebody else creates a mess. If somebody else creates a mess— but because they fail to be virtuous, if you fail to be virtuous in response, it's not going to fix the mess that they created. It's just going to create a deeper mess. So every mess always comes with a bunch of bad options. Those bad options, you know, I'm just going to tell one more lie and I'll be out of this. I'm just going to clear my browser history and nobody will know. I'm just going to get my friends to cover me. I'm just going to borrow more money. I'm just gonna, you know, it's, sometimes when we get in a mess, we're like those bank robbers in the movies, you know, it doesn't matter which specific movie, because it's like, this is just a trope in all sort of bank heist movies, where it's like, you know, they just need to do one more job. If they can just do one more job, if they can nail this heist, if they can get that money, then that'll solve all the problems that they have from the previous heist. They can pay off all the mob bosses that they owe money to, and then they can retire to a tropical island and sip margaritas for the rest of their life. But they just got to do one more job. The way to solve all the problems that they have from all the other jobs that they did is to do one more job. And we're like that with our messes sometimes. We're like, you know what's going to fix this? Is if I just do that thing one more time. But this time I'm going to do it right, and I'll be out of it. Because our bad options, when we make a mess, our bad options for responding to that mess always look like a good answer because they look like a quick fix. They always look like the most direct way out of the problem. Oh, I can see how to get... They're always, they always, always, always look like the easiest way to clean up our mess. But they're still bad options. Because they're bad options because they don't involve an act of virtue. They, they're bad options because they are another failure of virtue, and you can't clean up a mess that was made by a failure of virtue with another failure of virtue. And that's what David's about to do. So back to the story. 
It says, David crept up unnoticed. As a soldier, David had trained for this moment his whole life. Saul's there in the cave doing his business in the dark. Nobody can see. David's sneaking up. Nobody hears him. Saul doesn't hear him. And David's moving in. This is the moment he's been waiting for. Everything in his life has been leading up to this moment. And it's in that moment that David realizes that, yes, everything in his life has been leading up to that moment. But everything in his life after that moment will be impacted by what he does in that moment. And it's in that moment that David realizes he's about to make his mess messier. If he goes ahead and murders the king, David's going to end up as the king. But he's going to have to live the rest of his life with the story of how he became king. Granddad! Tell me the story about how you became the king. <clears throat> well, uh, King Saul was uh, going to the bathroom and I uh, stabbed him in the back. Oh, okay. Do you want to tell that story for the rest of your life about how you became king? David's starting to think, he's like, oh, that's not a great story. How's that going to go over? You know, I mean, if David decides that he's going to kill Saul and become king that way, is that an acceptable behavior in that day and age? Absolutely. Was it justified? Saul's been trying to kill him. Why not? Is it expected? I'm sure everybody expected if David had the opportunity to kill Saul, he would do it. But was it virtuous? No. And you don't clean up a mess caused by a failure of virtue by another failure of virtue. And David realizes that if in that moment that he's going to make a decision that he's going to regret, even though it's justified, even though it's expected, he realizes he can't live with that. That's not the story that he wants for his life. He wants something better than that. And so here's what the text says. It says, Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. It's interesting. Later, David actually, in the next verse, David actually even regrets doing this. He feels like this was too far. It says, Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. David says, You know what, guys? God promised me that I was going to be king. And I trust that God is going to bring that promise to fruition. But I don't think this is the way that, that, that God wants us to get there. You know, sometimes we think like, oh, well, the ends justify the means. You know, this is the vision. This is the, the dream that God's given me for my life. And I want to get there. And so sometimes we're like, oh, I'll do whatever is necessary to get there. Because that's what God's calling me to do. But God is as much about the means as he is about the ends. And if you get to the dream that God has called you to, if you get to the place that God has promised you, and you didn't follow God's way to get there, you ended up in the wrong place. It's as much about how you get there. And so David, says, David realizes, it's not my place. God promised me I'm going to be king, but he didn't ask me to, be, to take that responsibility on myself, to replace the king myself. So David's like, no, we're going to wait. Or I'm going to wait. I'm not going to do this. And the other soldiers, the other, the other David's friends are like, dude, that's cool. 
you're a better dude than us. We appreciate that you're so conscientious and just, you know, that you have this moral compass and we really appreciate that. And we don't, we don't want you to feel guilty for the rest of your life. We're not going to feel guilty. Why don't you just let us do it? We'll just take care of it for you. And David, again, David has an out. He's like, yeah, he's like, I'm not going to do anything wrong. I can be like, hey, you know, my, my guys, they just, they just killed the king. And David's like, no, no. He says, you know, the, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. So he doesn't let anybody else hurt the king either. But this is the moment. This is the climax of the story here. Because all 3,000 of Saul's men have seen him go into the cave. And now he's coming back out of the cave. People are trying to not make eye contact. They just want to get moving. Don't ask too many questions. And, you know, he gets, he gets on his donkey and he's about to ride away with the army. And David steps to the mouth of the cave. And says, hey, guys, over here. And instantly, every single soldier in that valley immediately understood what just didn't happen in the cave. They immediately recognized that David had every opportunity to kill the king, to kill Saul, and he didn't. Saul recognizes this immediately as well. And so then David comes out and he says, he he gives a kind of a speech about this, and he says, Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, He said, this day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. David says, I've been wronged, and I had every right to do that, but it's not my place. I will not do that. And I even defended you and protected you from, the, from my friends who wanted to kill you. And immediately, everyone recognizes that David has just done something that pretty much everyone in the valley is like, I don't know if I could have done that. Saul wouldn't have done it. Most of the soldiers wouldn't have done it. David's friends wouldn't have done it. David has taken the virtuous action very few people would take because it's not the easy one. It's not what's expected. It's not what's accepted. It's not even what's necessarily justified. That David would show grace to Saul in this situation goes above and beyond what we would consider morally acceptable. Like, like you know, the, the moral minimum. And so immediately, can you just imagine how much respect David immediately earns from every person, every person in that army? They'd all be like, this guy, he's a really good dude. He's a better man than me. I would follow him ever. He would make a great king because he is so good. He is so virtuous. And Saul basically realizes he's like, he realizes he's lost. He says, you know what? You're a better man than me. Takes his army and leaves and basically says, I'll leave you alone. And and about seven chapters later in the book of Samuel, Samuel records that there was a battle and a random Philistine arrow pierces Saul's armor and he dies and David becomes king. And God's promise to David is fulfilled, but David has a different story to tell. 
David's mess is cleaned up. But he didn't clean it up by failing to be virtuous. So what about you and me? What, what can we take from the story for our messes? Because we end up at our defining moment here. What are you and I going to do with the messes that we find in our life? Because as we talked about, every mess comes prepackaged with bad options. But those bad options, while they seem like a quick fix, will make the mess messier. And one day, I mean, right now it doesn't always feel like it when you're in the midst of the mess, but one day your mess is just going to come down to a sentence or two. Your mess is going to be like, you know, it'll, it'll be the recap a little, a little bit. You know, I went through a divorce. I declared bankruptcy. I was fired. I had an affair. I flunked out of school. I became addicted. But the thing is, is in the moment, we often feel like our mess is the thing that's going to define us. You know, I'm always going to be divorced. I'm always going to be the person who had an affair. But the thing is, is it's actually not our messes that define us. It's how we respond to our mess that defines us. What, how it is that we dealt with the mess. Did we make it messier? Your response to the mess is the real story. I went to my boss and I confessed that I took the money. I went to my professor and I admitted I cheated on the test. I admitted I was an alcoholic. I told my wife about the affair. I paid back the money I'd taken. I turned myself in. I went to a therapist to work on my relationships. I found a trusted friend and I told them my deepest secrets. How we respond to our mess is what ends up defining us. If we keep doubling down on the things that got us into the mess, then we're going to be defined that way. Oh, well, Eric's just a liar. Eric's just a hypocrite. Eric's just a philanderer. Eric's just an addict. Or if we respond with virtue, we change the story. Eric was a liar, but now he's learned to be more honest. Eric had a problem with money, but now he's learned to manage it. Eric's relationships always fell apart, and he's learned how to put them back together. Because your response to the mess is the actual part of your story. What type of person do you want to be? What story do you want to tell your grandkids about how you lived your life? That's what defines us. That's what, that's what matters. It's not that we find ourselves in a mess or that we made a mess, but how we responded to the mess we find ourselves in. Because we can't clean up a mess created by a failure of virtue by another failure of virtue. And here's the thing. is the virtuous thing and the expected thing aren't the same thing. The virtuous thing and the, the accepted thing aren't the same thing. The virtuous thing and the, the thing that everybody else is doing are not the same thing. I mean, I think it's always funny. You know, everybody says, oh, the world's such a mess. But when they're actually dealing with their mess, the way they, they justify how they deal with their messes, they're like, oh, well, everybody's doing it. And then they're surprised when it just makes their mess messier. In the Old Testament, a law was given that said, if somebody takes your eye, pokes your eye out, you have the right to poke their eye out. 
It sounds a little bit, it sounds like justice. It sounds fair. You know, you lose something, they lose something too. And this was actually a real step forward because up until that point, if somebody knocked, took your eye out, you would respond by killing them. You would just escalate the violence. So this was a way to kind of keep things calm, keep things more level. It was fair. But here's the thing. Is an eye for an eye still means that the mess got messier. Because now instead of one person being down an eye, you have two people down an eye. The mess got messier. Jesus comes along thousands of years later and says, and updates the teaching and says, hey, I know you've heard it said an eye for an eye, but I'm telling you that you should love your enemies and pray for those who hurt you. Don't just do what's accepted. Don't just do what's justified. Don't just do what everybody else is doing. Go above and beyond and do what is virtuous and love them and pray for them and do good to them. Jesus is like, don't. Jesus talks all the time about, you know, there's a narrow gate and a wide gate. And he says, everybody takes the wide gate. That's what everybody's doing. It's what's accepted. It's what's expected. He's like, I call you to go to the narrow gate. The narrow gate is the one that leads to life, but few people are going to find it because it's hard. Virtue is hard. We, if, they were, if, vir, if the virtuous option was the easy option, people would take it, but it's not. The bad options are the easy option. And so Jesus calls us not to do the easy thing or the expected thing. He calls us to do the virtuous thing when we are addressing our mess. So I want to close with a story. My daughter Olivia, she's in grade six right now. And I don't know if you remember being in grade six or if you know somebody who's in grade six, but grade six is perhaps you know, one of the worst times in people's lives. You know, school in grade six and seven and eight and then most of high school. Like, I mean, that whole stretch is just kind of like a really, really rough time. Kids are mean. Everybody's insecure. Everybody's trying to figure out their place in the world. And the best way to figure out, to feel good about yourself is to make fun of other people to make yourself feel better. Again, it's just like all this like nattering and teasing and bullying. And just, it's just this whole thing. And so she's in grade six, and so that's what she, she deals with it all the time. And so a couple months ago, we were having conversations almost every day. She'd come home and say, Dad, I'm getting teased again. People are making fun of me. I'm being bullied. And we talk about it and said, you know, have you talked to your teachers? What are you doing? How are you, how are you handling it? And, you know, and she, she certainly heard the message from her friends that if she was being bullied, that what she should do is she should step up and she should, she should put those kids in their place and, you know, give them a sick burn or punch them in the face or something, you know, just like, just, you know, really show them she's on top. And I said, okay. I said, you know, that, that's, that's fair. That's what everybody would expect you to do. I said, but what if you tried, you know, every time somebody was bullying you, every time somebody was mean to you, what if, what if every time they tr- made fun of you, what if you turned around and you gave them a compliment and said something nice about them or said something you liked about them or commented on something they were good at? I'm like, I can't promise you that that's going to, you know, actually make them stop, but it's sure going to confuse them. And that's something. And I said, and it means that you don't have to be mean back. You don't have to be like them. You can be different. And she said, oh, I'll think about it. She came back home a few days later and said, I, I talked to my teacher about what you were saying. And my teacher said, you know, I get that, and I get why your dad says that. Your dad works at a church, and so he would be a little idealistic like that. 
but it's a little naive, and it may not be, you know, I don't think it's going to work the way he thinks it's going to work. I'm not sure how she knew, wow, I thought it was going to work. I'm like, I don't, I don't think the kids immediately going to be like, oh, I'm so sorry, forgive me, let's be besties. Like, but for her, it was like, no, this doesn't make any sense. You know, you need, you need to stand up for yourself. This is what is accepted. This is what is expected. You need, you can't just be kind to the people who are mean to you. That's craziness. That's naive. And so we talked about it a bit more, and it's been on and off all year. But then I was talking to, to her this week, my daughter this week, and she said that she was being teased again a little bit this week, and we were talking about it. And she said, Dad, you know what one of my teachers said? A different teacher? She said, Olivia, you are so pure-hearted. And I thought, isn't that what, isn't, isn't that the story? You know, these kids, they're being mean, and you have every right to punch one of them in the face. But you're pure-hearted because you've been kind and you're trying to do the right thing, and you see the best in people. You took the virtuous path. And it's not easy, and it doesn't make sense, but it's the virtuous path. Isn't that the story that we want, is that people look at us and they say, yeah, there was a mess, but in the end, they're pure-hearted. They're virtuous. They're somebody I can look up to. So I was really inspired by her, because I think that's how we need to address our mess. It's not doing the easy thing, doing the virtuous thing. And so I just want you to think about your mess that you're dealing with and what options are in front of you. What, how are you dealing with the mess? What hard truths do you need to say? What conversations do you need to have? What does it look like to be pure-hearted or virtuous in the face of your mess? What does it look like for that, for you? What does it look like to follow the way of Jesus in your mess? Take, take the narrow path. Because if we follow Jesus and follow his example and his way, to take the virtuous path that he calls us to. Not the easy options, not the quick fixes, not the things that will make our mess messier, but to take the virtuous path, the pure-hearted path. That's how we address our mess. Let's pray.